If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 14. We'll be at Luke 14. In 1845, Sir John Franklin assembled a crew of 138 men to travel in two ships, the Erebus and the Terror, with the goal of finding a passage through the Canadian Arctic from the Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean. Annie Dillard writes to explain what happened. Here's what she says. Each sailing vessel carried an auxiliary steam engine and a 12-day supply of coal for the entire projected two- or three-years voyage. Instead of additional coal, each ship made room for a 1,200-volume library, a hand organ playing 50 tunes, china play settings for officers and men, cut glass wine goblets, and sterling silver flatware. The officer's sterling silver knives, fork, and spoons were particularly interesting. The silver was of an ornate Victorian design, very heavy at the handles and richly patterned. Engraved on the handles were the an individual officer's initials and family crests. The expedition carried no special clothing for the Arctic, only the uniforms of Her Majesty's Navy. The ship set out at High Dungeon amidst enormous glory and fanfare. Two months later, a British whaling captain met the two ships in Lancaster Sound. He reported back to England on the high spirits of the officers and men. He was also the last European to see any of them alive. For 20 years, search parties recovered skeletons from all over the frozen sea. One in particular, one skeleton was in uniform. Trousers and a jacket of fine blue cloth edged with silk braid with sleeves slashed and bearing five colored buttons each. Over his uniform, the dead man wore only a blue greatcoat with a black silk neckerchief. That was the Franklin Expedition. Now in contrast, I want you to consider a similar expedition that took place about 30 years later. This one led by Sir Ernest Shackleton who sought to cross from South America to Australia via the South Pole. I want you to consider especially the advertisement that he put in the paper to recruit for his expedition. Now, I will tell you, uh, because you know I hate giving illustrations that are false, there is some doubt about whether or not this is the actual advertisement he put in the paper. There are some, because they cannot find it in a paper of the time, think he didn't put it in there. But there are others who were alive at the time, some who are actually with him, say they saw and responded to this advertisement. So I give it a 50-50 chance of being right. Nevertheless, it captures perfectly the reality and the wisdom of Shackleton himself and how he prepared for this expedition. Here's what the advertisement said. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Low wages, bitter cold, Long hours of complete darkness. Safe return, doubtful. Honor and recognition in event of success. Like the Franklin Expedition, Shackleton's met with disaster. But every single person made it home alive. Why? Because Shackleton had first counted the cost. From his own experience and study, he knew what it was going to take to see this expedition accomplish its purpose. He knew the conditions they would face, and he was prepared for what was to come. 
And almost 2,000 years later, Jesus feared that those that were seeking to come around him and follow after him to be his disciples were much more like Franklin and a lot less like Shackleton. Even today, we face this imminent threat to our spiritual lives, failing to count the cost of being Jesus' disciples. So this morning, we want to hear Jesus' words. We want to allow him to help us understand what the cost is for being his disciples. We want to do that by returning to the Gospel of Luke after our break last week and picking up at verse 25 of chapter 14. Luke 14, beginning at verse 25, follow along as I read. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. May God bless the reading of his inspired and inerrant word of God. Last week as I was preparing for these verses, not knowing that I would... Uh, feel led to take a break, I said that this might be one of the most difficult but one of the most important sermons I've ever preached. Why? Because I fear that when we hear these words, we think this is just too hard. This is too radical. This is too all-consuming for Christians to really believe and practice. But the reality is this is just Christianity 101. When we come to passages like this, we face the temptation to lower the intensity of Jesus' words until it is more tolerable to us. That's our temptation this morning, to turn down the base, as it were, on Jesus' words so that we can hear it with ease. And it would be very easy for us to say things like, what Jesus really means, or until we've neutralized the clear and decisive calling that Jesus is issuing to those who would come after him. In other words, to soften his words and make it easier for us to listen to. But what we need to hear is the clarity of the message that he is saying here if we are going to be his disciples. If we had to summarize the passage in one sentence, I think it would be this. Salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you everything. Salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you everything. And so I want us to consider that thought, that reality, that truth as we work through verses 25 through 35. First, we need to understand the call of our discipleship. We need to understand the call of our discipleship. We need to begin by thinking about who Jesus is speaking to here. Luke says in verse 25, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them. So who are these great crowds 
that are coming after Jesus. Well, these are not, as it were, the senior saints who have been walking with God for decades. These are those that that are gathering around him, coming, as it were, for the first time. Jesus' ministry is picking up steam, and there are those saying, we like what we hear, we want to be around them. We want to be around him and what he is saying to us. Why is it important that we understand that? It's important because without seeing that reality, that this is, this is people coming to Jesus for the first time, we might think that somehow we can wiggle out of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not offering a seminary degree to long-term disciples who want to go the extra mile. That's not what he's doing here. He's introducing himself to those who are interested in following him. In the course of Luke's gospel, he, he's just told the good news of salvation with God. This is part of his evangelism message. And so what we have here is not something for exalted saints who live in a different reality than us. This is simple, basic discipleship that Jesus is explaining here. This is not reserved only for the super spiritual. This is the everyday expectation of Christ for all of his followers. And I think one of the reasons why this is hard for us to hear, this is hard for us to grasp, is because probably many of us, when we first heard the gospel, were not told this gospel. Perhaps we have sinned and not presented this kind of gospel in our own evangelism. When we heard the truth, even when we hear it today, it's all hearts and flowers, wonderful plans and streets of gold. No one's talking about sacrifice and death and leaving everything behind. Now we could speculate a lot on why that's the case, but this morning I simply think we need to repent of that way of thinking. We should simply admit that maybe we've emphasized the wrong things and listen to Jesus with fresh ears and with humble hearts and allow Him to correct our thinking. Again, remember just previous to this, Luke has recounted for us Jesus' words of hope in the gospel. Anyone can come to God through Christ. Anyone, the, the, the door to the table is open. The king is going out looking for anyone who will come and die with him. As we sing very often, weak and wounded, sick and sore, all who can see their great need of forgiveness, all who can see the emptiness of their hands before God, God invites to come and allow Him to fill them up with His grace, to give them eternal life with Himself through faith in Christ. And so what we have here is not how to be saved, but what being saved looks like. We, we come knowing that the debt has been paid. The, 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 the cost is already counted towards our account because of Christ. But now what is the response to that salvation? What is the response of one who has been invited to dine and feast at the table of God's salvation? Again, salvation is free. But Jesus makes it clear it's going to cost you everything. Discipleship will cost you everything. In other words... This is the, the way in which our lives should react to the immensity of God's grace and mercy in the sending of His Son. And the problem that we often have is that we want to short-circuit that response. We want to enjoy the benefits that God offers in the gospel, but we want it on our terms. Well, God, that sounds like a great deal, but you know, here is, here is my 5, 10, and 15-year plan for my life. Here is where I'm going to go. Here is what I intend to accomplish and what I'm going to do. And if you can be a part of that, wonderful. I'll be glad to have you. And Jesus says, that's not, that's not discipleship. Right. That's, that's not the response of one who has truly been 
saved. What we, what we see in that kind of thinking is so-called nominal Christianity that is toothless, that is fearful, and is so easily despised by the world. It looks very little from what we see of Christianity in the New Testament. So let's be clear from the outset. When Jesus says things like, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his family, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. When Jesus says those kinds of things, he's not just talking about mature believers living on the honors track. This is the basic call of Christianity. This is the basic call that all of us have as disciples of Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, let, let's unpack this call and let's seek to understand what the cost of our discipleship is. This is the second thing I want to see this morning, the cost of our discipleship. This passage is organized around three cannot statements. If you don't do this, this is not your life, then you cannot be my disciples. That's what Jesus says here. So, so what does he demand of his people? What does he require for those who would come after him? First of all, he requires affectionate loyalty. Affectionate loyalty. In verse 25 we read, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, I mean, right off the bat, we're squirming, aren't we? I mean, even if we've been raised in church, we're just thinking, what in the world is he talking about? I mean, this is the guy known for love, right? People will know you're my disciples by how you love one another. Love your uh, husbands love your wives as I love the church. Love your enemies and pray for them. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love, love, love is all you need, right? I mean, that, that, that's kind of what the song that it evokes in our minds. Jesus is known for love, and now he's talking about hate. But what is going on here? In fact, more than that, he is already excoriated the Pharisees for not honoring their parents by caring for them in old age. So what in the world is going on here? Now again, we're not trying to neutralize what Jesus is saying, but we need to understand he's using a figure of speech that was common in the Semitic culture of his day. He is, he is saying hate to show the comparative way in which we are to love. You say, well, I'm not sure I understand that. Well, think of Genesis 29. You'll remember there that Abraham's grandson, Jacob, had two wives, which as a side note, did not work out well for him, okay? Regardless of the shows you see on television, it is not a good idea for lots of reasons, all right? He was tricked into marrying the older sister, Leah, though he desperately wanted to be with Rachel. Eventually, the father Laban gave him Rachel as well. And in verse 30 of chapter 29 in Genesis, we're told Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Well, that seems reasonable enough, but it's a gloss. It's, it's, it, it's a way of communicating the biblical text in language that is understandable to us today. It's kind of like in Hebrew when the text will say, um, so-and-so's nostrils flared. We're thinking, what, what does that mean? Well, the translation is, he got really angry. Because that's what the Hebrew is doing. It's using word pictures to tell us what is happening. So it's not bad for the translations to tell us that. But what it really says is, Jacob loved Rachel and hated Leah. That's what the text says. Now, the very next verse makes that clear even in the English. Moses says, the Lord saw that Leah was hated. So, so, the, so the English is making that clear. But what that doesn't mean is that Jacob is ignoring her or beating on her, being unkind to her. Not at all. I mean, this is the lady that bears him four children. Okay? They're, they're, they're obviously getting along. But 
What it's saying is, despite his love for Leah, the intensity of Jacob's love for Rachel was so strong that his affection for Leah looked like hatred compared to his love for Rachel. It paled in comparison. So Luke 14 now, Jesus has that same imagery in mind. He is saying the same thing. Love your family. Love your friends. Fulfill your obligations to care for them. But you better love me more. In fact, Jesus says, compared to your love for me, love for anyone else, even your own self, will seem like hatred when people seek to compare the two. So do you grasp the implications of that? We're not seeking to neutralize, we're seeking to, to heighten. And all of the good and wise planning and commanding to, to love and to care, Jesus stands head and shoulders above them all in terms of our loyalty, the loyalty of our affections and our love for him. So, so for the Christian, there's no such thing when it comes to our relationship with Christ saying something like, well, family comes first. No, it doesn't. Jesus comes first. Jesus comes first in all things. He has the priority. He has the loyalty. Now again, that doesn't mean that we engage in some kind of dereliction of duty. I, I, and, and let me just step aside and say, just as a side note, you know, I hear this all the time. You know, well, you know, you just got to be careful because you don't want to ne- neglect your family. Well, I get that. Jesus tells us, especially as husbands and fathers, not to neglect your family. But can I tell you something from, from my very limited 30-some years of experience of being aware of, of church life, that's a myth. That, that person is a mythological creature. I have never seen a man so devoted to Christ that he neglected his family. Never once. I, 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 think, I think that is a, that is a false, uh, that, that is a red herring to get us to, to not consider the depth of what Jesus is calling for here in our commitment to him. There is no human relationship, no matter how good and godly, that comes before our relationship to Christ. Father, mother, brother, sister, friend, cousin, son, daughter, wife, husband, you name it. No one should be more important to us than Christ. That's what he says. Our loyalty to him must be supreme. In his commentary on these verses, I think J.C. Ryle insightly points this out. Experience shows both in the church at home and in the mission field abroad, that the greatest foes to a man's soul are sometimes those of his own house. It sometimes happens that the greatest hindrance in the way of an awkward conscience, awakened conscience, is the opposition of relatives and friends. Ungodly fathers cannot bear to see their sons taking up new views of religion. Worldly mothers are vexed to see their daughters unwilling to enter into the gaieties of the world. A collision of opinion takes place frequently as soon as grace enters into a family. And then comes the time when the true Christian must remember the spirit of our Lord's words in this passage. He must be willing to offend his family rather than offend Christ. I think he captures perfectly what Jesus is getting at here by way of application for the text. If Jesus is really supreme, if he is first in our loyalty and our affections, then we must be willing to offend even family rather than offend Christ. This is part of the cost of our discipleship to him. Jesus demands affectionate loyalty. He also demands absolute priority. 
He demands absolute priority. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, does that mean that his cross is not sufficient? Of course not. From, from Genesis 3 through Revelation 22, the stream of atonement theology in the scriptures are all pointing to this reality that Jesus' cross work is the only sufficient offering that could appease God's wrath towards our sin and make it possible for sinners to be saved. Nevertheless, he tells us that we, might, we must take up our own cross as echoes of the cross he himself will bear. Now, remember what this is. The cross was an instrument of death. I know sometimes we, we blithely talk about that person at work we don't like or that family member who's a pain, and we just we're kind of roll our eyes and say, oh, it's just my cross to bear. But as Christians, that, that language should be scrubbed from our vocabulary because that's not, what, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. The cross was an instrument of death, of execution. It was reserved for the killing of criminals. If we were writing this today, it would be like someone saying, grab the bullets for your firing squad. Go tie the noose for your hanging. Take up the syringe of your lethal injection. That's the kind of imagery that Jesus is saying here. He's saying, if you're going to come to me, your past life is over. Who you once were is done. You are dead now. In fact, Paul says, makes that very clear in Colossians 3. He says, you died and now your life is hidden with Christ. When you put your faith in him, your de his death now becomes your death. His newness of life becomes your newness of life. There is meant to be a fundamental break, which is what baptism is all about. You're going down into the grave immersed in Christ and coming out a new creation in him. There should be something different. And he says, therefore, we take up our cross. We take up the death to ourself and follow after him. And if we can't do that, we're not his disciples, truly. We may call ourselves that, but we're not. Christ himself now becomes our absolute priority. Whatever our priorities were beforehand, they're gone. We died to them. They are, they are nailed to that cross, and now Christ is our absolute priority. So in following Jesus now, he gets to determine things like where we live, what kind of house we should buy, what kind of job we should work, who we should marry, what clothes we wear, what car we drive. Jesus gets to say now how we should plan our life and what will be important to us. All the things that we as, a, as Americans love to grab onto and claim for ourselves and, and use as means of staking out our identity and fulfilling our, our fantasies and our pleasures and our desires, Christ says, done, dead, I am on the throne now. I have absolute priority in your life. And the reality is when we seek to live that way, we will encounter difficulty. The cross is more than just death to ourselves. It is also the death that's going to come by the flaming arrows of the enemy through the culture. But we just spent 40 minutes talking about this last week. All who desire to live a life of, dis of discipleship following after Jesus will experience trouble in this world because those who oppose Christ will also oppose us when we seek to obey him. Now, all of this is a, is a massive claim that Jesus is making over our lives. And so what does he say? He says, but, but before you just think, man, this is awesome, this is cool, this is, this is the Messiah, we got to get in on this. He says, no, you stop and you count the cost. You think about what this is going to cost you if you follow after me. And he gives two illustrations about it. And what he's trying to say here is it actually only makes sense 
even knowing the cost to come after me. First he says, which of you, verse 28, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began and was not able to finish. Can you imagine being a builder in a culture like this where they despise shame and want to save face at all costs? Jesus says, don't be foolish. Don't start into something if you can't finish it. But, you know, people are like that in all cultures. In fact, I've been told that if you go to the west coast of Scotland and the city of Oban, you can drive by a hill and you can see this very odd-looking uh, structure up on a hill. And if you ask someone, what, what is this structure? They'll say, they'll tell you that at one time it was meant to be a monument uh, in that area of Scotland, but the people building it ran out of money. And so there it sits, very much like this parable, completely unfinished. Rather than being a testament to whatever it was this person was building to, now the people in that area have named it this, folly. Folly. It's a living parable of the foolishness of not counting the cost before you enter into that project. And Jesus is saying the same thing here. Don't be foolish. If you want to follow me, you think about what it's going to cost you first. Be ready for what is to come if you decide to follow me. Count the cost. But then he goes on in the second illustration and he describes the consequences of not following him. So here's what's going to happen if you're not ready to follow him, if you're not ready for what's ahead. But now, just understand what's going to happen if you don't follow me. Verse 31. What king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes after him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So Jesus is flipping the question here. Count the cost before you follow. But if you think the cost is too high following, you should also count the cost if you don't follow. Christ himself is the conquering king and he's coming back and he's going to establish his kingdom in this world and nothing is going to stop him. Nothing is going to stop him. So are you really going to try and stand against him? You really want to persist in trying to buck his authority and, and say, no, thank you? Are you going to try and, 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 and be a rebel yelling, freedom, like some two-bit William Wallace wannabe in the face of Christ? I don't think so. I don't think so because it's going to be a field of slaughter when he returns. Read the end of the book. Jesus is pictured as a warrior vanquishing his foes, standing in the blood of his enemies up to his ankles all across the earth. That is not a hopeful people for rebels. Let me just say. Jesus is saying, therefore, you say, I don't know if I can give all that up. Consider the alternative and count the cost. Is the cost of your own soul worth not following me in this life? So what do we do? We follow we follow in faith, giving him absolute priority in our lives. We give him affectionate loyalty. We give him absolute priority. And when we do follow him, then we are ready to cast aside our abandoned prosperity. This is the last thing that we need to see. Abandoned prosperity. Jesus issues his final command in verse 33. Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, again, we don't want to undercut what Jesus is teaching here, but let's be clear. He's not saying, if you're my disciple, you go out tonight, and you get rid of everything that you have, and you sit naked on the road. Okay? I mean, we know, right? Jesus and his disciples wore clothes when they walked around, right? 
They had money bags that carried swords. I mean, there's, there's lots of stuff going on, okay? So, so he's not just saying, up, oh, done, everything is gone. The point is this. Are you ready to part with your possessions? Are you ready to give up your wealth? Are you ready to deal with the loss of reputation if Jesus requires it? More simply put, is Jesus more important to you than your stuff? That's what he's saying here. What, what things do you have that you hold on to and think, I just can't live without? I, I don't care if Jesus showed up in the flesh. I don't think I could get rid of those things. I, I have to admit that I was not to that point, but there was a time um, about a decade ago where I really idolized my books. Every, I mean, I'm not kidding. Every scratch, every dent, it was, like, it was like a pain in my heart. I thought, you know, if I could just sell this on eBay, I could get a, a nice new fresh copy. And God had to convict me of that. He said, you know, these are not trophies on the shelf. These are tools in the shed to help you understand the Bible and how to live as a Christian and, and, and pastor well. I say, yeah, yeah, what, what am I thinking? And so suddenly, Melinda can tell you, the pen comes out. I start writing in the books, start underlining the key sentences and making notations and having arguments where I think the authors are nuts. And, and, and then people say, well, I need a book on this. I say, let's go, let's find some. And I pull off two or three and say, pick one that looks nice and it goes out and guess what? Lots of times it don't come back. And I'm okay with that. But the question is, what, what, what other things do we have in our life that we say, I, you can't have that, God, that's mine. You, you can't take that away from me. What would I do? What, what, what would happen? A man that I knew at seminary just lost his, one of his sons not long ago. I can't imagine the pain that that would be, the, 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 the pain that that would cause. But here's a guy who, who posts naked I was born and came into this world. Naked I will go away. Bless it. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Bless it be the name of the Lord. Here's a man who trusts Christ even when he takes his son. What, what do we have? What kind of prosperity and possessions do we think are more valuable to us than the very Son of God? John Piper is famous for using this kind of war language to talk about the difference between a peacetime and a wartime mentality to our lives as Christians. He talks about the British ship, the Queen Mary. During peacetime, it was a luxury liner that served 3,000 passengers gourmet meals with 18-piece setting, 18 place settings. I was here on Friday morning for a, a, a local pastor's fellowship. And when I come in, the place was decked out for the ladies. And I kind of felt like I was on the Queen Mary all of a sudden. And there was all the fine glass. I thought, whoa, man, this is, this is looking nice. But what happened? World War II broke out. And so suddenly, this, this ship was stripped down to be used as a troop carrier. Instead of 3,000 luxury liner passengers, it had 15,000 troops eating rations with just a fork and a spoon. And if you lost it, you didn't get another. The mission of that time necessitated a change in lifestyle. Prosperity was abandoned for the sake of the war. And Jesus caused the same kind of thing. He says, he says, come to me. Travel down this road where the king has invited you to a banquet, a feast of salvation. But you need to understand, your steps on the road to his house will be war. They will be filled with battle against sin and against the enemy as you seek to spread and advance the gospel of the kingdom. And we have to be ready for it. Now, that doesn't mean there's never time for rest or niceties. I mean, let's just be honest with ourselves. We live in a first world country. Our life is filled with all kinds of pleasures and rest and niceties. 
The greatest problem most of us face on a, on a regular basis is a lack of Wi-Fi in public spaces when we desperately feel like we need it. Even those in wartime on the front line are given time for leave. But frankly, once again, most of us don't have the problem of not resting enough. That's, that's not where most of us live. Most of us do not have the problem of giving away so much that we're starving ourselves to death that we have no, no vehicle to drive to get to our job. We, we, we don't have a problem with lack of prosperity. Our problem is the opposite. We left the battle gear in the closet and we rarely take it out to look at it. We hate the thought of the stripped down bunks for 15000 but we love the idea of the posh cabins and fine china for 3000 And Jesus speaks into our hearts quite clearly and says, I should be more important to you than your stuff. The cause of the gospel should be more urgent to you than your prosperity. Yeah. That the mission requires it. These are the demands of Jesus. This is the cost of discipleship. And notice how he ends. He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. Salt has many uses, but what is it known for? What is the one constant for salt? saltiness, right? You know, you put that thing in your mouth, whoo, salty. I mean, you can use it for a lot of things, but that is the common denominator, saltiness. If it doesn't have that, it's useless. I mean, if I bought salt from the store and I, and I, and I put it in my food and there was no salt flavor and I took my finger and uh, that and there's nothing, I'd be taking that thing back to the store and saying, I got gypped. This is, this is garbage. Can't do anything with this. It's not salty. In Jesus' day, there's no purification for salt. There's no processing for it. So the salt they had was, was actually sodium chloride mixed with other kinds of chemicals. So because of that mixed composition, it was actually possible for the chemicals to break down and for the so-called salt not to be salt anymore. It would lose its saltiness. And Jesus says at that point, it's not good for anything. It's not even good to, to, to throw out on the manure pile or to use as, as fertilizer. It's nothing. And Jesus is saying, listen, I don't want saltless disciples. I can't use you. If you do not bear the distinctive marks of a cross-centered life, if you do not bear the distinctive reality of what it means to come after me and imitate me by faith in my saving work for you, I, 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 don't, I don't need that kind of disciple. They're, they're worthless. They're worthless. Friends, loved ones, this, this is a high cost of our discipleship. Make no mistake about it. If you're coming out saying, well, that doesn't sound so bad, I, then I failed. Because Jesus makes it clear this is a difficult road. And the question we have to ask is, is he worth all this? Is, does Jesus deserve the kind of radical sacrifice that he is calling us to? And that's how I want to end very briefly. I just, we need to see the Christ of our discipleship. The Christ of our discipleship. Who is the one who calls us to live this kind of life? First of all, it's Jesus who is Lord. Jesus is Lord. How can he say, love me more than anyone else? Because he's God the Son. I mean, what is the first commandment? Love the Lord your God with all of your mind, heart, soul, and strength. This is why he can demand exclusive, affectionate loyalty. This is why he can insist that he be the first most important person in our life. Because he's not just a man. He's not just a good teacher. He is God in the flesh. Everything that God is, he is. And thus he deserves. He is worth that loyalty, that affection, that priority in our life. He's worth it. But more than that, he's not just Lord. Jesus is loving. Jesus is loving. 
Jesus can call us to bear our cross because he has borne his own. And it was far more difficult for him than it will be for us. Again, don't go away believing that if we deny ourselves, we take up our cross, that's what saves us. No, the Bible is clear that Christ's cross and his cross alone is what brings salvation. Jesus says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. It is only his cross that brings eternal salvation. And so when we bear up our own cross, we are giving evidence to the fact that we have trusted in Christ and we are now following after him. On the cross, Jesus willingly abandoned the glory he deserved to associate with the lowly like us. He set aside the divine privileges of glory to become one who is considered as the worst of sinners, taking upon himself the punishment that they deserve. Jesus joyfully obeyed his Father in all things, even death. Why? Because he loved his Father and he loves sinners. So when he makes these demands, he isn't being cruel. He's still loving. But as in the words of C.S. Lewis, Jesus is not a tame lion. He isn't safe, but he's good. He's glorious. He brings us to God, giving us eternal life. And in light of all these things, none of the sacrifices that he calls us for should seem all that heavy or burdensome. In light of who Jesus is, this should seem like a difficult but natural response. When we understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us, we will gladly follow him despite the pain, despite the difficulty. When we understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us, we can rightly sing with Isaac Watts, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine demands my soul, my life, my all. The reality is all of us here this morning are in different places when, when it comes to something like this. Some of us are more mature than others. Some of us are, are, are closer to what Jesus says here than others. But this is the life that we should all be striving for. And the question is, does anybody actually live this way? The answer is, yeah, they do. Many people today live this way, but I want to highlight one in particular. I want you to consider the man, John Bunyan. When he was alive, there was a very complex set of circumstances between church and state which meant that only certain people could pastor churches or preach the gospel but that's what he was called to do he felt by god and in fact though uneducated he knew his bible well and was the envy of many an educated preacher in his day but he was caught he was arrested and he was jailed for preaching the gospel. And this was especially painful to him because it meant that he left his wife and kids behind and they were not financially solvent. John Bunyan earned his living by being a repairer of pots and pans. He was what they call a tinker. You can imagine they didn't make a lot of money. And so he's sitting in jail wondering, how are they going to eat? Who's going to take care of them? And, and the authorities gave him the choice. Just renounce preaching the gospel. Just say you'll stop and you can go home to your family. One of his daughters was even blind, and he was especially fearful for her. I imagine most of us would just say, fine, I'm going home. Bunyan didn't do that. Bunyan stayed in jail, and from jail he wrote this letter. He said, quote, The parting with my wife and poor children has often been to me in this place as the pulling of flesh from my bones. And that not only because I am fond of these great mercies that is being with his family, but also because I have often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family is likely to be meeting with, especially my poor blind child who lay nearer to my heart than all I have besides. Oh, the thought of the hardship I have thought my blind one might go under would break my heart to pieces. 
but yet I must venture all with God. Oh, I've seen in this condition, I am like a man pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and children, and yet I thought, I must do it. I must do it. Why? Because Jesus demands it, and Jesus is worth it. That's what Bunyan believed. He believed passages like this, and it was evident in our life. And it's my prayer that we would see and believe just like Bunyan did as well. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Father, we are thankful for your son, Jesus Christ. God, we are thankful that the demands that he calls us to are not for the saving of our souls. God, he has endured far worse under your righteous wrath to accomplish that. And Father, we know that in these demands as those who have already been saved, already been brought among the fellowship of his people, that these are the evidence of our love for him, our, our faith in him. And God, we know they are hard, but we also know, Lord, that you will enable us to do these things. That you are the one by your word and by your spirit and by the fellowship of your people that you will mature us and grow us to be the kind of salty disciples that Jesus has in mind here. That we will be able to fulfill the demands and requirements that he calls us to. To truly reflect the worth and the glory of our Savior. So Father, we pray that you do that in our lives. That you begin doing that now just as you have already begun doing it. You continue to move us to be these people until the day of Christ's return. We ask it in his name. Amen.